on this day of memory, we gather to sing and to pray and to worship you, great God of heaven and earth, creator of all things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we remember the past and we look to the future. On this day when the guns once fell silent, we come before you, God, seeking your peace. On this day of hope, in the face of fear, we come before you, God, praying with all our hearts. O oh God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. Open our eyes, we pray, in the eyes of the nations to find a different path through the disagreements of life in this world. And in this time, Lord, when we look into your, your word, the Bible, and we sing these songs and we pray, and we're in the mysterious presence of your Holy Spirit, may we be recommitted to being people of peace, true peace. And may we catch a vision of how the world could live together. And so we echo the old prayers. Make us channels of your peace. Let there be peace on earth, and let it begin with us. And we pray this in the mighty and powerful and wonderful high name of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I know that many of you are in the midst of 100 days of prayer, and I'm really glad that you are. When we pray, God does stuff, good stuff, and that's really, really important. You know that prayer is a form of rebellion? Did you know that? Prayer is a form of rebellion against the status quo. Prayer is this subversive thing against the way things are. We're praying for change. We're praying for something different and new. Prayer is this defiance against the powers of evil. Prayer is what God calls us to. So we come to God and we ask him to do things, good things in our world and to make a difference in the name of Jesus Christ. So there's a statement that we often use that kind of really, I could go on a little rant just now. It's this statement, it, it is what it is. It, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever said it. I've said it. <laughs> it is what it is. Do you know what that is? It seems at times like that's one of those things that just says, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. it doesn't, you know what, something wrong with the world, but you know, it is what it is, that's all. Prayer is just the opposite of that. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay, it's like saying, okay, God, it is, it is what it is. Would you change it? And would you help me to be an agent to help change it and make it better? Oh, that made too much noise. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so when you're praying like this, it's, you're coming to the Lord God Almighty, the, the host, the, the high, high God of heaven, and asking him to do stuff. 
And he does stuff. He's alive. He's active. Jesus died. Yes, he did on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him up and, and raised him up to the highest position in the whole universe. So he's the one that we're speaking with. So keep on being subversive to the evil elements in the world, would you? And let's keep praying and asking God to do mighty things here in our midst, here at Force View, but also out in our neighborhoods and wherever we are. We're a people of prayer. So today, we're still continuing our series through the book of Nehemiah, and we're looking at this title, Facing Adversity. So adversity, you know, difficulty. Sometimes adversity is very impersonal. It comes from the outside, the situation of life, and bad stuff happens to us, and let's not call it good. We know that God can take even the bad things and work them for good, but there's a lot of bad stuff that happens, right, to us and in the world as well. So it can be impersonal, but sometimes it can also feel very personal, where there's a very unfriendly personal opposition to us in the world. And um, facing adversity is our title today. So I have a friend who's both older and wiser than I am. And when I ask him how he's doing, he says, you know, I'm happy, sad. Happy, sad. So what on earth do you mean by that? He says, you know, there are a lot of things in this life that make me happy. I am so glad to be a child of God. I'm so glad that Jesus gave his life for me on the cross. He has changed me. He is transforming me. I am so thankful to have this gift of eternal life that he's given me. But there are lots of things that make me sad. I'm sad about the brokenness in the world, the, 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 the abuses that are in the world, the inequalities that are in the world. He says, I'm happy, sad. And isn't that true for most of us, that there are things that make us happy and there are things that make us sad, and we always sort of live in the tension and the balance of those two things. And that's why we have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and keep moving forward, even when there are things that make us sad. So if you're single, or if you're married, or whatever your situation you will find times of adversity in your life, and maybe you're in the midst of one right now. And so today, what we want to do is to look to Nehemiah and the fact that he went through times of adversity. What did he do? Now, Nehemiah was not Jesus. He's not the Son of God, God the Son. But Nehemiah, for us, in this example today, is a really good example for us of how to handle adversity and opposition. So we're going to take a look at him today. Uh, Nehemiah has already faced a lot of adversity. And I think we'll put up here a couple of things that we've already kind of taken a look at. Uh, in, in chapter 3, which is where all the people, so Nehemiah is charged with going back to Israel and building up the wall of Jerusalem. We've gone over this the last couple of weeks. So in chapter 3, verse 5, which is the first one here, everybody's coming together and everybody's saying, okay, come on, let's build the wall, let's build the wall. He tells them how God has already worked in his own heart and how God has worked with the, with the king, Artaxerxes, to give him resources to go and rebuild the wall. So he comes back and everybody's jumping on board. Come on, let's build the wall. But look at verse five. The next section of the wall was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So here's Nehemiah leading the charge, 
And these guys are here. We don't do bricks. We don't get our hands dirty or whatever it is. I don't know. What, now, what do you think? Why would these people, everybody else is jumping on board. I'm asking you a question now. Why might these people not put their shoulder to the job under the supervision of other people? Why might they not? Anybody hazard a guess? Pride, meaning, I don't do that kind of thing. That's manual labor, and I'm a noble. Anything else? Pardon me? You could make enemies. There, are, there actually were enemies outside who might come and attack them. And maybe, it's, I'm just interpreting what you're saying here a little bit, but maybe they would say, you know what, if, I'm not getting involved here, because if the enemy comes in and says, I didn't do it, I wasn't, no, I wasn't one of them. Maybe they wanted to be the leader, right? So then they just, okay, if I can't lead this thing, I'm not getting involved. I'm not a skilled laborer. No, I don't know how to pick up rocks. <laughs> okay, so, you know, a mortar, putting in mortar and all that kind of stuff, it's easy to learn that, isn't it, eh? Um, but yeah, probably very true. It's hard labor. Let's not, let's not say so. You know, I was thinking of another thing. I was thinking that they were saying, Who, so who's this Nehemiah guy? We don't know him. He's just come in here. He's got stories of God, but who is this guy? And is he, he's going to be our leader, and I'm, I'm supposed to follow him? So I'm going to wait and see whether this thing goes well. And if it goes really well, I might jump in later on. But I'm not taking the risk to jump in right now. Who is this guy? And do you know how demoralizing that is when everybody's going, yeah, come on, come on, let's go. And you got other people sitting over here going, I don't think so. I'm not. But you know what Nehemiah does? Nehemiah builds on. <laughs> so you got some people who don't, they're not coming on board. Nehemiah builds on. He keeps calling the people together, getting the vision out there, and so on. So you can see here from, from chapter 4 and the, these verses, uh, we read these last week, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. So these are guys from outside of of the, is, in the nation of Israel. When they, uh, he became angry and was greatly incensed, he ridiculed the Jews. The presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the sto stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Because they were charred. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, have you ever noticed that critics sort of feed one another? Like they kind of stand side by side and the one guy says something, the other guy says something and another, another dig comes over here. He was at his side, said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Mockery. So the point is simply this. Nehemiah has faced adversity. Okay? So what does he do? He does not let it get him down. Nehemiah builds on. I was going to ask you to say that, but it sort of sounds like a high school chant or something like that. So, but he does. He builds on. He just keeps going, which is wonderful. But what he really does is he reminds the people about God, about the character of God. And we looked at that 
last week, he said that, look, the Lord is working here. And he uses this word, zakar, and maybe we could go on to the next screen there. He uses the word zakar, which means remember. And this is where he calls the people to remember the Lord, that the Lord is great. Here he says, after I looked these things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families. Don't fight one another. Stand together with one another and keep on working. Fight for your families, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. You get the picture? There, Some are building here, some there, some way over there. We're widely separated. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there and our God will fight for us. So there's a sense if they were attacked, they'd blow the trumpet and everybody'd go to the spot and protect one another. There was this sense of protecting one another in the group. It's a beautiful thing. The word remember, we talked about last week. The Hebrew term is zakar. Would you just say that? To remember is so important, the character of God, because it's so easy to forget. Actually, the Hebrew people talked about backing into the future. Does this make sense to you? They speak about backing into the future. So here you are. You're backing into the future. How how are you backing into the future? Because the only thing you can really see is the past, right? So we look to the past, and here's the faithfulness of God. Here's the character of God. And as we move into the future, we're really backing into the future because we don't know what's behind us, and I hope I don't fall off the platform here, but we do, in a sense, back into the future, don't we? Trusting in the character of God, we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in the character of God, and we keep moving forward. We build on. So that's what he he did. He had faced opposition from the outside, military threats, mockery, but he builds on. And as he did that, he called the people together to see the vision, to continue to work in unity, to be loyal to one another, to really have a sense of purpose, and here we go together. But now we come to chapter five in the story when there's a more subtle problem. There's another menace, not from the outside. This menace threatens more than the construction of the wall. The structure at risk is their community, their oneness, their sense of being the people of God together. So we want to read from Nehemiah chapter 5 now and see what the issue is. So I think that will come up here. Now, The men and their wives, this is Nehemiah 5, the first five verses. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we've got to get grain. So there were people with large families who were coming and building the wall, and they they couldn't go out and get their food. So here's the issue. There's a lack of food. 
Others were saying, in verse 3 here, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. They had to mortgage their land. They too, they owned land out in the countryside, but they couldn't go out there and work their land because they're building the wall. So some people came along and said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. You let me take your land, and I'll give you money for food. And they had to mortgage their land. And you know how important land was to those farmers? So still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So there were taxes. And I guess if you remember the name of the king, do you remember his name? Our tax, Xerxes. You'd assume that there was some tax involved here. That was an awful, awful pun, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Ruth probably told me I shouldn't have used that one. <laughs> anyway, here. So taxes, and then although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and, th and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to, what's that word? Slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So they've had to mortgage their stuff and, and even give some of their kids to slavery. In other words, if you couldn't pay for something, you'd have to give a child over to somebody, to a rich landowner or something like this, who would act as sort of a servant in that household and pay down the debt for you until you could pay it off fully. So the big, big deal here is this. Who is it who is taking advantage of the poor in this way? Who is making these loans and charging exorbitant interest so that people can get food? Who is taking the mortgage and getting the land from these people? Who is taking the kids into slavery? It's their rich Hebrew neighbors. The rich exploiting the poor. This is so much against the heart of God and so much against the heart of Nehemiah. I think I have something here about how God thinks about the poor, God's heart for the poor. From Isaiah chapter 58, look at this passage. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? So there were some of the Israel people who were fasting by not eating food and so on and thinking they were gaining some kind of righteousness before God in this. He says, now look, isn't this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. This kind of freedom, this kind of care for people who are poor. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them, not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help, and he'll say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the moon day. God has this passion for the poor. And here were these rich people who were taking advantage of and exploiting the poor so that they could get richer, not caring at all, about those other people. How does God 
feel about this. I think there's another passage that's going to come up. This is Jesus speaking. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God's heart, Jesus' heart for the poor. Do you see it? And here are these guys taking advantage of the poor instead of helping them. There's another verse up here. This is the the early church in Acts chapter 4, and I just want to see this thing. There were no needy persons among them. (laughs) They had caught the idea, the heart of God. Let's share, let's help, let's really lift up those who are down. Let's take care of the poor. So, what are the steps to recon- reconciliation? And there's this problem within the people. How are we going to solve this thing? And so, Nehemiah, first of all, he becomes angry. But the way the scripture puts it is that he ponders. When I heard their outcry in these charges, I was very angry. Um, but I want to read this to you from here. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry and I pondered them in my mind. He was angry. He'd been buying people out of slavery and bringing them into freedom. And now these people are putting people back into slavery. And so he becomes angry. Now, do you ever become angry? You don't have to answer this. This is not... (laughs) the part where you give me the answers. But I know we all get angry at times. Did you know that anger is a good gift from God? It's a good emotional gift that he gives us because that informs us that there is something wrong. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, God tells us when you're angry, not if you ever get angry, which you should never do. He doesn't say that at all because we all get angry. When you're angry, do not, did anybody know the verse? Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Because our anger can give the devil an incredible opportunity to do awful damage in our series of relationships. Is this true? You know it's true. I mean, we've all experienced this, haven't we? So he gets angry. What's he going to do with his anger? It says that he ponders. So pondering, this taking time right off the bat, before we do anything, is called the pause principle. The pause principle in anger management you just stop for a minute before you do anything. Let's pause. That's exactly what he does. He says, I pondered. I stopped. I pondered. And I'm sure he prayed as well. Because anger can do such damage. I remember being at a big gathering, a men's gathering, all men. It, a few years ago, there was a group called Promise Keepers. And they're still going. But that very big groups in big football stadium. So I went to one in Detroit, actually, and there were 70,000 men 
in this big football stadium. And one of the speakers there was speaking about anger and how anger actually hurts our families. And so he said this, men, it was a hot summer day. He said, men, I want you to take off one shoe. 70,000 guys on a hot summer day. <laughs> so he said, okay, take your shoe, hold it up in the air. When I count to three, drop your shoe. One, two, three. And it sounded like thunder. 70,000 shoes at one time. Sounded like thunder. Then he said, okay, now I want you to, I want you to pull a hair out of your head and some of you guys are gonna have to pull a hair out of your neighbor's head because you don't have any hair on your head. <laughs> he said, pull a hair out of your head. So, bing, like this, you know, he says, okay, now when I count to three, drop the hair. One, two, three. Couldn't hear a thing. Then he says, men, men, when you vent your anger all over your family, you think you're dropping a hair, you're dropping 70,000 shoes the damage that can be done when we let our anger vent and control us and come out. That's one of the ways we handle anger, is to vent it, let it all out. It's not very good. We feel better. <laughs> Afterwards, everybody else feels worse. Is this true? Okay. There's a second way, and that is to suppress anger, and this would be sort of my normal way of handling things. I'm more of a suppressor rather than an ex expressor. But thanks to Ruth, I'm learning how to express. <laughs> you have to learn how to do this in a marriage situation, right? So we suppress our anger or we keep it all in. You know what? That's not good for us. That's not good for you to do that. It's the source of a lot of uh, sickness and other kind of stuff to keep all the anger in and never <laughs> let it get expressed. So there's a third option, right? Oh, the other thing is to suppress our anger is not honest either. And we're angry. We say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Praise the Lord. <laughs> it is so phony, isn't it? Really? I mean, we're seething <laughs> inside. So it's not honest and it doesn't let the other person know how we're really doing. It doesn't help to move the relationship forward. So anyway, what do we do? We acknowledge the anger and we ponder and pray, just like Nehemiah does in the text. Somebody said that it's sort of like driving your car and the red light starts flashing on the dashboard. It says that you've got a problem with your, with your car here. So to uh, vent it would mean you just get a hammer and you smash the red light. You say, there you go. I don't see the red light anymore, so I guess we're okay. Solve the problem. Not quite. Or to suppress it means you get a big piece of duct tape and you just put it over the red light. Now you can't see the red light anymore and you keep driving. You think, okay, everything's fine. <laughs> Doesn't work either. So what do you do? You pull your car over. You take the pause principle. You stop. You say, look, pop the hood or call CAA or somebody like this. And you say, okay, there's a problem here. Let's, let's deal with this thing. And so it is with him. Nehemiah stops, he ponders, he prays, and then what's he do? He comes to the people involved, and he does not go around and talk to others. He actually calls the people who are involved, he calls them in, and he talks with them directly. I pondered them in my mind, then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting. So you see, he talks with the small group of people, and they didn't really listen to him. He said, we're just making profit. This is what you do, is you make money. 
It didn't work very well. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. We've set them free. And now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? So what he says is he brings God into the equation here. And he says, you know what? God has this passion for the poor and you're abusing them. You're taking advantage of them. So there's a reflection on the character of God. But also, it's a statement to other people. So the other nations that are out there are looking over here and saying, look at those guys. And they, were, they, they were slaves in other countries. Now they come back. Now they put them in slaves in their own country. What is that all about? So there's kind of a mockery of their faith in God. So he helps them see what they're doing and then he widens the circle to bring in some others. And, um, and then he brings God into the picture. That they, Do they want to honor God with their life, in their behavior, the way they are? And then the next thing that he does is very interesting. He confesses his own part. In verse 10, so we're just walking through the passage here, okay? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. He says, you know what? We're... We're also guilty of this. So let's stop it. He owns his own part. And then, as he does this, he comes to the solution. And that comes in verse 11 here, where he says, let's give all the stuff back. Immediately, their fields, vineyards, olives, and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. He proposes a solution, and everybody says, okay, let's do it. And you know what the end result is? They actually end up taking an oath. They bring God into the whole thing, and they say, okay, this is not just a handshake. We're going to promise God that we're not going to take interest like this anymore. This, this is a sacred promise before God. And so what is the result? They make this promise. We'll give it back. We'll not demand anything more. We'll do as you say. A summon the priests made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. So there's a word of warning there as well. You see that? See, this is serious. Let's actually do it. Because there's a warning if we won't. And the last thing is this. They promised before God. And then... Um, they have, there's the result down here on the right. People see God in this, and they give him praise. And there's the verse. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. Like, so be it. Let it be. Make it happen. Sort of like, make it so. Right? Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. When there's a resolution of a conflict and adversity, do you know who gets the praise? God gets the praise, and we all win. They, those guys lost some money, so what? What's money, right? <laughs> God gets the glory, and there's unity once again among the people. Handling adversity in a godly way is one of the best ways that we show the presence of the living God within ourselves. Can I say that again? Handling adversity and conflict in a godly way 
is one of the best ways that we prove to the world that God is really alive in us. So, like Nehemiah, in the midst of conflict or whatever, we build on, we keep moving forward, faith and trust in the living God, and then we resolve our conflicts in godly ways. Um, I'll tell you a story. I know our time has really kind of flown by here today. But here's a story. Uh, there was a man by the name of Paderewski. You might have heard this story before. He was a pianist and a statesman in Poland. And he traveled a lot as a concert pianist and did these concerts. And he was at a particular place where uh, there was a mother who had been teaching her young son how to play the piano. And this little kid, about six years old or so, the mother and son came and sat right in the front row. And as, as the crowd was coming, the big grand piano was up on the platform like this. And Paderewski was off in the wings behind the curtains. And so the mother is talking with somebody beside her as the place fills up. And the little kid sits the piano and comes up. And he sits at the piano and he starts to play. And he only knows one song. And it is... I won't anymore. So people are in the crowd. You can just see them saying, what is that kid doing up there? Where is his mother? We didn't come here to listen to some stupid kid play this little thing. In the meantime, Paderewski listens and he comes out and he leans over the little boy as he's doing his thing. And Paderewski starts to play up and down the keyboard in time and in tune with what the kid is doing. And Paderewski whispers in his ears, he says, don't stop. Don't ever quit. Together, you and I will make beautiful music. This is like God and us in our imperfect little living. We want to honor him. We're just doing our best. And the presence of the living Lord Jesus Christ in our life leans over us and starts to play. Don't quit. Don't stop. Build on. Trust the Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this great truth. In our own lives, we face adversity, conflict, difficulties, probably in our workplace, sometimes even in our church, in our friendships. Help us, Lord, to be people who reconcile, who continue to make every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, who reach out like Nehemiah did, who confess, confess his own part, who wants to bring glory to God in all things. We have to handle these things to bring glory to God and, and reconcilers. As you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, we thank you and we praise you. Amen. So we're gonna share communion here in just a moment. And uh, I put a verse up on the scripture, up on the screen here. I hope it'll come up for us. It's from um, the New Testament. And it says this. And he died for all. That would be Jesus, right? And Jesus died for all, 
so that those who live, and that'd be us, we're still alive, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again and was raised again. I wonder if you'd just meditate on this verse, thinking about, you know, the resolution of conflict, how you handle difficulties, despair, and those kind of things. Christ has died for us. He, he died for all of us so that those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ who died for us and was raised again. Meditate on that, would you? And then we'll take communion together.